Welcome to On Demand, where startup B2B SaaS companies come to grow. When it comes to demand generation, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. That's why we created this podcast, to help founders and marketers like you unlock a combination that's right for your business. Let's get into it. Chris Wixon, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks, Matt. Yeah, excited to be here. Looking forward to the chat today. Fantastic. I am thrilled that you've agreed to come on. I think your story is one that will resonate with a lot of listeners. Let's kick off with a little intro. Tell us a little bit more about who you are and what's led us to chat today. Yeah, sure. So, hello, everyone. My name is Chris Wixon. I'll tell a bit about my story, kind of two startups. My journey began back at university, 2007. Myself and a couple of friends set up our, our first business. We launched a website called Rate My Placement, and it was a bit of a predecessor to Glassdoor. So for students to rate and review their work placements, internships, had a lot from that business. It took off as we went out of university. They were good times as we were figuring everything out. And that business is still going strong today, 15, 16 years later. It kind of offers a whole suite of things in the early career space from school leavers through to graduates. Within that business, the journey went on. In 2010-11, we were doing a lot of university career fairs, freshers fairs out on campus to promote the website and everything that we were doing there. And we were signing up students on pen and paper, clipboards. And you'll see how this kind of leads into my sort of B2B SaaS journey in 2010, yeah, we, we signed up 40,000 students on paper forms. And as you can imagine, we were a bootstrap company, small team. I remember sitting in the back of the car on the way back from various universities trying to read the handwriting and type this information up into an Excel spreadsheet to get it into our database to send out an email. We obviously lost a ton of data. We'd lose the paper, couldn't read the handwriting, all the problems with that sort of volume of manual data capture. So we were... Like, right, we just build a mobile app. 2010, so iPads just come out. Mobile apps were becoming a thing. Sat down with our developer who went on to become my co-founder in Accrue, which we'll obviously talk more about. And we said, right, we're not going to use paper again. Let's build a mobile app. So we did that. Knew nothing about SaaS software. Just we had this problem that we wanted to solve. I guess like a lot of kind of good ideas, solve your, you know, solve your own problem. We went around London and bought up a load of dodgy iPads and iPod touches from Cash Converter in various places. Went out on campus the following year and obviously transformed the way in which we could capture data, the accuracy. Quite novel back in those days. Students were obviously quite happy to pick up an iPad and type their details in. So solved their own problem. To kind of fast forward through, we had a lot of employers who were keen on using the data capture app that we'd built because they were facing the same problem. So that was where the first sort of, some, I guess, notion of could we turn this into an actual product that other people could use. So we did just that. In 20, kind of 12, 13, we started to get some corporate employers using it at the same use case, career fairs. And that was when, I guess, the idea for a crew began. The more I was sort of wandering around London, seeing use cases where people were still capturing data manually, thinking, okay, that this product could be used in, in any number of um, scenarios. So my co-founders and I, in 2013, we decided we'd spin the software off as a separate company. My two co-founders on the rate my placement side of things carried on running with that business. And I and my co-founder and the crew, Andy, we, we kind of took this mobile app and decided we'd give it a go and see where we could take it. So we spent the first two or three years in product market fit mode, like just experimenting. Again, a lot of fun. We raised a little bit of money, just some angel money 
um, just to kind of give us a bit of a, a runway. And we, again, a lot of fun in those early years, lots of different use cases. We had some great consumer brands using it. We had Chelsea Football Club, Liverpool, Adidas, Mercedes, lots of like B2C brands wanting to use it for experiential pop-up marketing activity, which was interesting. And we that was an area we really looked into. But increasingly, we were getting B2B companies wanting to use it at trade shows and exhibitions to capture leads. And the more we we went on with that journey, again, we were relatively bootstrapped. So with a small team, a handful of developers, and obviously the request for features was getting wider and wider. Shops asking, could we integrate it with their point-of-sale system? Football clubs wanted to hook it into their membership system. Mercedes wanting it to scan driving licenses for truck days. And then B2B companies saying, oh, can we hook it into our marketing automation, CRM systems? And that was the area we were like, there's a big problem here. So it wasn't quite overnight, but it wasn't far from it. We decided, look, if we're going to do this, we just need to pick one problem and try and really solve that problem deeply. And the more we read and learned about B2B SaaS, the more we felt like this was where we wanted to be. We felt there's a big problem in the, in the world of trade shows and exhibitions, which very briefly, we've all been to events where you, know, you approach a booth, someone scans your badge with a rented crappy scanner that they've got from the organizer. And then at some point, they get a spreadsheet with all the badges they've scanned and they chuck it in their marketing system. And then three weeks later, you get a generic email. Hey, Matt, you know, you stop by the booth. No one knows what we talked about. Here's some information. And on they go. Or business cards are exchanged, all those kind of things. So we, we were like, well, what if we could solve that for the exhibitor? So if I'm an exhibitor, if I'm an enterprise doing lots of trade shows, I want to bring my own technology that's really customized to me, mobile app experience hooked into my marketing automation, my CRM systems. So that was a problem we solved. And then I get, I'll, I'll keep moving through this so we can get into the meat of it. But yeah, we had a, what, it was almost like once we picked that problem to deeply solve in around 2015, 16, we never looked back. We had a really great three or four year run building that business up to 2018, where we raised the Series A round, which nowadays feels like a tiny little sort of pre-seed round. We raised like just under a couple of million pounds to really kind of put our foot down. And then just after we'd closed the funding round, we had an acquisition approach from a, a US company called Integrate, B2B marketing technology company. And initially, we because we just raised the money and we were really set on our sort of path and things were going great, it wasn't something we immediately jumped on. But the more time we spent with Integrate and the leadership team there, the more we felt that was a, that was a really good fit in everything they were trying to do. They had a, a gap in the product suite around events. They also wanted to expand into Europe. So we were a kind of good match for them and ended up going through with the acquisition, which was a stressful but great experience to kind of go through. So we completed that acquisition in 2019 and all well after a bumpy few months of like mashing these companies together and going through all the sort of integration challenges you go through with an acquisition. Just when it felt like we turned the corner and we had a really awesome start to 2020, we were on track to do like a million dollars in new ARR in Q1. And then obviously March 2020, we all know what happened. The world shuts down. Our product was pretty much exclusively for live events. So whilst the rest of the Integrate business, like a lot of tech companies, had a, a kind of really strong COVID um, in all the other the digital offerings, for us, it's a real shame because it kind of led to, I guess, the, the kind of breakup of all the great stuff. A lot of the great stuff we built in a crew. The product is, is still going and you know, it's starting to sort of reemerge as obviously events are coming back. But it meant the the whole kind of experience is a bit, a bit bittersweet. Obviously, I'm incredibly grateful and the timing was was excellent to get acquired when we did. 
um, because it meant we were well insulated during COVID, but equally it was obviously a pretty tough experience to go through like like everybody through that sort of COVID era. So I did my earnout at Integrate. It was a three-year earnout. My role sort of evolved into a sort of broader role across the Integrate offering. And then I exited Integrate at the end or at the start of 2022. Integrate ended up getting acquired themselves in a, in a private equity deal around the same time. So it was kind of good timing for me. And then I took a bit of time off last year. I've got a young family. Um, and then since then, I have been doing some... I've kind of stumbled into like advisory work consultancy with some other startups, which we can obviously dig a bit more into today. But very much, I've got the fire in my belly to, to go again. I'm still just about, say, I'm in my 30s, just about. So I've still got plenty of miles on the clock and excited to kind of take everything I've learned across... RMP and a crew and integrate into another startup at some point or relatively soon. It's such a fantastic story. And it's a story that I think a lot of people listening to this would, a journey at least, that people would aspire to, to go on, even with all of the highs and lows that come with it. I want to just take a step back and just talk a little bit about some of the numbers, if you're able to, in terms of the growth, just so that people can get a sense of the size of a crew and how that growth trajectory started to move as you got closer to acquisition. Are you able to share some of the numbers around sort of ARR numbers over, the, over those years? Yeah, sure. I mean, if I go back to right to the start, we were fortunate in that because we built up some clients within RMP, right, my placement, we kind of had some revenue on the board when we spun a crew out in day one. So we had like 100K sort of ARR that we could kind of call our own, which was a great start. So then we had some customer stories and some revenue to report. So that was like 2013, 14. When we got acquired, we were just north of 3 million in ARR. And we pretty much doubled ARR three years in, in a row. From the point where we decided to really go all in on B2B events, in which was got 2015, 16, from that point on, we doubled our ARR, so three years in a row up to the point of acquisition. That was kind of revenue-wise. The valuation of the business when we got acquired was $34 million. And we were a team of around 50 people, most of them in the UK, but we just started to hire a couple of people over in the US. We were doing a lot of business over in the US. And part of the reason we raised that money in summer of 2018 was to put our foot down in the States. So it was obviously, let's say, good timing when the acquisition offer came along with a US company. Again, one of the, the many reasons why we felt it was a sort of really good fit for us to accelerate the business within Integrate. So many routes that we could go down. Managing a team from sort of small friends and, and a small group all the way up to 50 is definitely an area I'm interested in. But I want to, if we can, just think about that growth journey and in particular, some of the lessons around sales and marketing, because I know people listening to this are interested on business development, marketing, go-to-market strategies. So I know you said that decision to really double down on B2B was was critical. If we can break that down a little bit, what were some of the challenges or what were some of the decisions in that process that on reflection you think were really good calls at the time? Maybe I'll start with, I guess, the bad calls that led us to make the good calls because that might frame it nicely. I think, so in the early days before we really had product market fit, we brought on a couple of graduates as salespeople. This was when, like I say, right in the early days when we were still figuring out the use cases, which in hindsight was not the right move to make. They were both like really smart, bright people, but inexperienced. And also, we didn't know what we were selling yet. So it helped us validate and uh, I guess directions we did and didn't want to go, go down. And eventually, we had to let both of them go. And that was, I guess, the realization of like, I need to sell this thing like as the founder not moving away from founder-led sales too soon. 
And I kind of had to make sure I kind of got back in the trenches. And if I can't sell this thing, you can't expect other people to sell it. So that was one of the important things in the early stage. And myself and then one other guy called Dan, who we brought on fairly early on into the sales team. So the two of us kind of got us to the first million in ARR to that point where we thought, okay, now is the right time to bring additional salespeople in. We, we know who we're selling to. We know our value prop- proposition, our positioning. We've got some good stories. I guess looking back, the playbook was starting to emerge there that meant it could be repeatable. That was going to be my question, Chris, was around that playbook, because I see this a lot where founder-led sales happens and then sales teams are brought in and it doesn't quite work in the same way because superficially, at least, it seems as though well, the founder has has the knowledge that's required in order to close those deals. But in reality, interested to get your take on it. I don't necessarily think there's a playbook in place. There isn't necessarily a framework that can be handed to somebody that whilst they may not be as successful because they don't have CEO on the on the signature, they struggle to take that playbook and run with it. And I guess from your perspective, having that playbook in place was critical if you, as you were starting to think about scaling the sales team. Definitely. I guess the founder magic that you're sort of able to like sprinkle on deals is not going to come from a, an account exec or an SDR that you bring into the business. So I think one of the best decisions we made, we brought in Winning by Design, who are a US-based SaaS sales consultancy. I just was a big consumer of their content, loved their thinking, and they were just opening up in the UK. So we were like one of their first clients here in the UK. So bringing them in at around that time when we felt we really had a the, our own sort of playbook that was emerging and using their frameworks to actually build out and establish a repeatable playbook that everyone was bought into just made it so much easier to onboard salespeople, get them trained, get our SDRs aware of the problems we were solving and how that process should work. And that was, a yeah, I'd say when I look back and reflect at some of those key decisions we made that sort of really accelerated our growth, going through that program, winning by design and the framework that put in place for us was one of the key factors in the growth over the next couple of years. That links nicely to another question I had, which is around the decision to go the business development route versus a pure marketing go-to-market strategy. Was that a conscious decision? I'm guessing that the content that you'd seen from Winning by Design probably led you down a path that sales business development was probably going to be good for you. Talk me through that decision to maybe, I know you had a very strong marketing function. I always admired the work that you guys did around the marketing side, but was that a conscious decision to go, we're going we're gonna to really focus on business development because we're B2B primarily? Yeah, there were a few factors at play. We felt we were disrupting an existing kind of antiquated market. So it wasn't like that we had a ton of competitors. We weren't just another player in the, this space. So because we were trying to get people to think differently and and do things differently to the way they'd always done them in in live events and exhibitions, we felt we needed to do both really. Like we needed to build a marketing engine, but that takes time, like uh, building a mini brand and awareness of not just a crew and the problem we solve, but ultimately there's a different way of doing things that that takes time. So you've got to be able to do that. But equally in the meantime, we had to do outbound. We were really invested early in. SDRs, as we call them, BDRs. Andy and I were big consumers of the early SASTA content. We read Predictable Revenue. Like I think, it, I mean, it came out, I don't know, 2011, 12. So we really believed in getting SDRs in early. That landscape has shifted dramatically, which we can dig more into. But for us, back in those early days, having an outbound approach layered on top of whilst we were sort of trying to build a marketing engine alongside 
was a really important thing. And a lot of our biggest deals, our, our lifetime value of our biggest customers started with a, an outbound email back in sort of 2015, 16. So it really worked for us whilst we were building up the marketing engine alongside. Did you stay close to the business development functions, the outbound function throughout? Again, I've seen firsthand and secondhand where, where a founder will pass it over to an outbound function and then sort of step back, whereas others I've seen where they, they remain very close to that function. What was your role? Were you there supporting that team, learning with them as they, as they learned, or, or were you slightly more removed from that process? I'd say over time, I did become more removed, but never too far. When the engine was really firing in 2018, going into the acquisition 2019, myself and my head of sales and head of marketing, we were really joined at the hip. And our SDRs very much, they were like their parents. They were kind of co-managed. They sat right in the junction between sales and marketing. And that was when things were, were working incredibly well. And as I look back now, although we didn't call it this at the time, but that was like our, our revenue function. Whilst we did, we experimented with a lot of approaches with the SDRs. We had some focused on purely picking up inbounds. We had some purely focused on outbounds and the whole mix of that. It very much was had to become a flywheel. You know, I was, to Mike uh, on the marketing side, it was like, you're only successful if sales are successful and, and vice versa. And our SDRs obviously had a really crucial role to kind of play in that journey, whether it was picking up inbounds and working them through or going after outbounds where we were trying to do the sort of marketing air cover around the accounts that they were trying to prospect into. Did you think at any point that around the brand, you've talked about, in fact, I think the words you used were accrue as a, as a mini brand. Did you have a sense of you were developing a brand here as, as you started to grow and as you started to get traction? Or was, was it a bit of an afterthought in hindsight? Probably more of an afterthought. As I say, because we were trying to solve a problem in a different way to just the incumbent status quo in the trade shows, which is always just you rent the scanners or you use whatever app the organizer provided, because we were trying to do things differently there. I feel like as I look back, the brand being built was more of a byproduct of, I guess, the work we did there rather than deliberately trying to build this brands and that did come in time, and we knew that was an important part of the journey. But in those early days, it was more about just can we get people's attention with this problem and, and how we solve that problem. And, and again, I look back now, and I think we actually, although we probably didn't call it product marketing, I think we were actually doing some really good product marketing in those early years that put us in good stead going forward. I want to just ask you a few more questions about the crew before we, we move on. But I'm, I'm curious to know the breakdown that you would get over, a, say, a typical quarter of, of inbound versus outbound. What did that look like? Can you just back of an envelope numbers? We weren't far off 50-50 at times. And it would fluctuate either way, but it was a pretty even split. And often we would find, coming back to that sort of thinking of like, you, we are a combined revenue function. Often we would find that inbounds were accounts that we'd prospected into months ago. Or outbound would become easier because it would be like, oh, actually, when you traced it back, oh, that person jumped on a webinar six months ago. And we, so that, like, we tried, I guess, not to become really black and white. Is it an inbound or is it an outbound? And there's a lot of thoughts there that we could probably um, spend a lot of time like, unpacking. But yeah, that was kind of the, the, the split. I think we did a really good job of like, continually fine tuning our inbound process. SDRs jumping on it very quickly, fast tracking the prospect. If it was a ICP, great target buyer persona, let's not chuck them on a qualifying call with a 
22-year-old SDR. Let's get them straight to our top AE and get them into a, a deal process. And we, yeah, we worked on all these different workflows. Again, like as I look back now, marketing operations, we probably weren't calling it marketing ops back then. But again, we were doing a lot of good stuff there. We we're really trying to think about lead routing and getting, getting the foundations in order so that we could make sure we were maximizing our opportunities as they came. Were there any campaigns or activities that really stand out to you as pivotal in the growth? Any specific ones that you want to share? I mean, some of the content I look back and think we're doing a lot of great stuff. We were really fortunate in that we brought on an an intern guy that Andy had done a bit of work with, a young guy called Finn, who was an incredible, and still is, an incredible video guy. So we were really lucky that in our early days, we had somebody in the team who could produce really great video content. And again, so we're talking 2016 to 2019 here. So a lot of the video content, A, none of our competitors were doing video well, or they might have one video that they paid an agency to make and it just sat on their website. Whereas we were able to produce a lot of good video content, slice and dice longer form into short form content. We had a design mic on our marketing side. Like I think we built a small but mighty marketing function. He had thin on the video side we had a creative designer we had an events person we had a content writer and we had a sort of generalist digital marketer so that, that team four or five people were able to really outproduce larger competitors who were all over the place so some of the video content podcasting that we did whenever i speak to customers over the following years a lot of them reference that are oh, really you know the, the videos you were doing then or the content you were producing really kind of got our attention. So that was pretty cool to look back on. I'm pleased you mentioned the video because that's one of the things that when I first became aware of you that stood out to me significantly was that you were punching above your weight so much on the video content side. I remember there was there was a sales video, I think, that you and your co-founder had put together. And I looked at it and I shared it internally and I, I actually downloaded the videos like, and, sh- and shared it with everybody. I said, we need to have something like this. It was just beautiful. It was really well shot, but also very, very clear on the product and the problem that you were solving. It does elevate. And I think you were ahead of your time in, in that regard. I think there's still so far to go in terms of high quality videography with SaaS. I think it's such a missed opportunity, but it's not easy. It's about finding the people that can do it, putting that team together. Like everything in business kind of comes down to the, the people you've got. So yeah, we were lucky to kind of bring Finn and, and have the, the talent that we did in that team. Obviously, the tools and technology are there now. It's never been kind of easier to turn on your webcam and produce good-looking short-form content with all the AI tools as well that can be laid into that. So you're right, it still feels like a missed opportunity for a lot of companies to leverage the short-form content. Uh, yeah, when I see on LinkedIn or companies that are still linking to kind of long-form gated PDFs my heart sinks a little bit. It's like it's so easy now that those things still have a role to play and they're, they are valuable, but there's so many more opportunities to produce great content and get it out there in front of people. Couldn't agree more. I'm working with clients that you and I both know right now to really develop their capabilities around video content, high quality production, studio setups. I think it's the way forward and it elevates in a world where AI can generate a blog post in with a couple of sentences. How does a brand, how does a SaaS company really stand out? And I think it, it stands out in ways that are very hard to replicate. So good quality content produced extremely professionally and, and, and sent out across the web in a number of different ways through through lots of different channels. That's for me, that's how you stand out is you do what others, you do that extra that others are just not prepared to do in order to stand out. Totally. And the ability to slice and dice short form content just to get people's attention. Like the world is a 
increasingly noisy place and b2b buying has never been more complex so you've got to do things differently you've got to be able to get people's attention and yeah as you say video and creative use of video is a great way to do that excellent so let's let's move on into part two if we like of some of the advice and some of the insights that you've gained from your past but applied to to a business nowadays i want to start off with this notion of, of when do you bring in an outbound function when do you bring in business development with the with the companies that you advise and obviously with the experience that you've got how do you start to get them to think about when is a good time to start to bring in additional support on the business development side as we spoke about briefly earlier until I guess the founder or that founding team has got to a point when you could actually start to write down what is like a basis of a playbook, isn't it? I think once you've got to a point when you really know sectors you're able to sell into, personas that you can resonate with and truly solve problems for, you've proved there's a repeatable sales process. Jason Lemkin often talks about, Sasta talks about, can you get 10 independent customers, not your friends and family, not People are doing you a favor. If you can get to 10 independent clients who are truly buying your product for what the problem it solves, then you're onto something. So I think there's certain milestones I think that you've got to get to when you're in a place where you could then bring on somebody, coach them, train them, let them understand the playbook and unleash them. I feel like if you do that too early, like, like we did with those early grads, you quickly realize, well, hopefully you quickly realize that's a problem or or not, and it, it leads to worse things. So yeah, I think once you've got, that, like I said, that repeatability there, and you can actually document and start to build that playbook out, that feels like the kind of, I guess, that first inflection point of when you'd start to bring SDRs and BDRs into the business. I do think there's a storm brewing in the world of sort of business development, sales development. I think we've got two things going on. There's a flood of SDRs, BDRs out there of varying quality. I think they're often managed by relatively inexperienced managers as well. Maybe a good SDR becomes the SDR team lead or the manager, which is not a bad thing potentially, but equally has its drawbacks. The tools and technologies that are out there now, there's never been more. Like when we first started doing SDRs, there was we didn't have sales automation, engagement, intelligence tools. So it was all pretty old school and disconnected. There's a huge range of categories there to solve for some of these challenges. And now we've got AI on top of that which means companies can now en masse churn out semi-personalized content and emails. So we've got this huge amount of noise going on with SDRs. And then at the same time, B2B buying is becoming more and more complex. So we've got, it's never been kind of harder to sell in B2B. So I do worry about where, what, how this, how this shift, what's going to happen over the next few years when it comes to SDRs. But I still don't think it, it I still think it comes back to if you can train and, and truly have a playbook that you can train your SDRs on keep coaching them, supporting them, give them the tools and technologies they need, but make sure they keep really focused on knowing their ideal customer profiles, their buyer personas inside out, truly knowing the problems. I think that they're the ones that will hopefully kind of break through the noise and continue to succeed. And do you think there's a requirement to have a scalable, predictable lead generation process as well with that? Or do you think one of those early SDRs could could work purely going outbound, purely going cold? Or do you, do you think it requires a, some form of lead gen process? I think it can be done, but it's incredibly hard if you haven't got marketing air cover, marketing support. It is so, you know, again, come back to like, it's never been noisier and B2B buying is more complex. So if you're doing true cold outbound outreach without marketing trying to 
provide the, the coverage and awareness and it is very hard. It can be done, but it is incredibly hard. So I do think coming back to this idea of this revenue function, it's so important that marketing is working you know, in conjunction with SDRs and sales to provide that air cover, provide that awareness of the brand, of the problems that are being solved. You know, if I'm a buyer today and I get an email from, a, from an SDR, if I open it, and if you get my attention, I'm not going to reply to that email. I'm probably going to go and look on your website or go and look on G2 and start to and maybe just make a mental note that if, as and when I need to solve that problem, I might go and have another look. So you've got to have all of those bases covered. The odds of getting a reply to a cold email are obviously tiny and the same with cold calling. Like Again, all these things can be can work and do work, but have to be as part of a, an engine, part of a sort of the, the flywheel that a company's got to build up. I couldn't agree more. What about then in terms of on the marketing side? You, you mentioned the team that you had a crew at the crew. How important is it, do you think, who makes up that team? Should somebody in an early stage startup be looking for that T-shaped marketer who can do a lot themselves? Or would you be more inclined to maybe spend a little bit more and, and build out a bit of a team of maybe a generalist and a couple of specialists working, supporting them? How do you think about the, the overall structure of a marketing function? I guess in the early days, if if you're not funded or maybe if you're, if you're bootstrapped or perhaps you've raised a little bit of angel money, obviously the dream I think would be you'd find that T-shaped marketer, the generalist who can help think about strategy and but also roll their sleeves up and operate and do. And those people do exist and they are out there. But I think one of the challenges we've got right now is obviously those types of people only want to do that for so long. And they move up into management and senior roles. So if you go find them now, they're kind of like, well, I need a team or I want a handful of people. So we tried a few different shapes and sizes and sort of morphed into the team that I talked through. And that took time to kind of build up that function. But I do think one of the early, as I mentioned earlier, like product marketing, although they, as I say at the time we weren't necessarily calling it product marketing, if I could start anywhere, I think in, as I think about the next startup, like doing a great job of product marketing in that in that early stage feels really important. But really being able to get across how your product solves particular problems for your target customer base. So that feels like a, a, a good place to start. Once you've got some of those kind of foundational pieces in place, that is. Well, that was going to be my segue into the next section, really, is what advice do you give those early stage startups? And, and I'm guessing really being clear on the problem that you solve and being able to articulate that in a, in a really clear and concise way is important. How do you help founders think about how they do that? As I mentioned right at the start, I sort of stumbled into doing some advisory work, consultancy work. When I was taking my time off, I was meeting with some founders for coffee informally, and that's kind of turned into something a bit more formal. And the things I've done with some of the companies I've been working with, kind of as I've reflected on it, there's almost like two layers to it. The first one has been foundational stuff. And I, I don't think enough companies spend enough time here, but just really, have you got vision, mission documented and is it up to date and people still believe in it? And if not, there's some work to be done there. How does that then flow down into a true understanding of ideal customer profile and, and buyer personas? And have you done taken the time to do the work there, really got a good understanding of the problems that you're solving for those customers? Have you thought deeply about positioning, how you want to position your products and service. And big fan of April Dunford, her book, I see you probably got on your desk somewhere <laughs> like me. Um, yeah, like that that framework of, of positioning. How does that flow into OKRs, objectives and key results? How does that then flow down to strategy and the tactics that you use? So all like these foundational pieces that 
I think so many companies maybe have parts of them in place, but might not have revisited them. Can I just jump in there, Chris? Because because I, I hear that a lot, and I'm curious to know from your perspective why you think. Because I reckon if you were to survey most early stage startup founders, they would be able to list off all of those quite quickly and quite easily. But it's the ones that don't do it, and I'm curious as to why they don't do it. Why do you think that they do? They miss them because I think those are the steps that really are foundational. What what is it that's that's causing them to just gloss over those and progress on? This is a hypothesis, mine, I guess. As you grow and add more people. I think there's like certain breaking points. And maybe when you've got less than 10 people, everybody's pretty close to these things we just talked about. And they, yeah, they're they front and center of how the business is operating. Once you go past sort of 10, 20, 30 people, life gets busy. There's lots of things going on. The business is hopefully growing. There's a million projects and things going on, everything that comes with that. And that's when I think some of these things start to fall by the wayside. And that's when you then start to get inefficiencies and misalignment and friction. And I quite often say, you know, I think if you went around businesses where they've got like within the sort of scale up mode, and if you just ask people what they're working on, and if you ask them like why enough times, I think often you get to the answer of like, oh, I don't really know why we're working on this project or where it fits in the hierarchy or actually oh, it's just the thing we've been working on. So I think it's really important for founders to take the time two or three times a year to step back and just recheck are these are these things still right does everything make sense does it all sort of stack up into this plan and align with the mission and the vision and yeah so i think like business gets in the way <laughs> life gets busy things get in the way and everyone's always running around and yeah, working on busy stuff but it, are they the right things so making sure that we can sense check those important feels important and what's your advice to startups around the communication of these to the team internally? I think there is definitely a strong case for perhaps over-communicating, but perhaps that can also go too far. How do you think about the way in which that overall strategy, the vision, the mission is communicated and revisited with the team so that it's understood, but perhaps not over-laboured? I think it depends on the profile of the founder. If the founder is the type of founder that is very visible and active and leads the weekly stand-up and is capable of doing a great job of getting that across. I think it's important that people keep hearing it from, from them. If they're not that type of founder, then it's doubly important that the senior leadership team, whatever that might look like, truly are bought into the everything that we, we've talked through there and equipped to cascade that down the business. Because There's no point doing all this work if it just stops at the leadership team and then they never communicate that down into their teams so i mean ideally both of those things are happening the, the, the founder and uh, integrate the ceo jeremy bloom did, was like an amazing and i'm sure continues to do like an amazing job of reminding people every week every month this is the mission this is who we are that's what we do and there were at times it felt a bit overkill but as i look back now like you have to keep keep drumming that message into the team because it is important people understand how their the work they do fits into that bigger plan and Yes, that's, I think it is, it is important that that happens. So I want to take the last couple of minutes that we've got thinking about two areas. One is about taking on money, taking on private money, VC money, but also then the route towards eventual acquisition. I'm a massive fan of the guys at 37 Signals who have been very vocal about not taking on external money and, and being bootstrapped and self-funded as much as they can. Given the process that you've gone through, obviously, as sharing as much as you're comfortable sharing, I'm curious to know, how do you think about taking on money in an early stage startup and the trajectory that that can potentially put you on? 
At Accrue, in total, we raised about 2.5 million across a couple of angel rounds and then our Series A. And that was more, was that by design? I don't think it was. We, As our growth developed, it became increasingly obvious. By the time we were ready to go and raise money, we could have raised a lot more if we wanted to. We weren't sure we wanted to raise a lot more, but we had a real clear path. It wasn't hard for us to raise money in 2018 because we were growing fast. We had a great story. It was very obvious if you put a couple of million pounds into this tank where we could go with it. We felt good about the money we raised there and we got good valuation. And at Integrate, I guess we jumped a few steps and Integrate were heavily VC backed and very much like a US sort of VC driven business. So kind of got a bit of insight into that sort of type of business. Now, and like everything in SaaS, there's no necessarily right or wrong answer. I'm much more in the mind of with my next business to bootstrap or raise small amounts from quite deliberately from angels. And that's not to say going down the VC route isn't isn't right because for some businesses it is, but it's a very different type of journey. And once you get on that journey, you can't get off. Uh, well, well, you can, but it's either a very good result or a very bad result. And there's nothing in between, I don't think. So yeah, as I think about like the next part of the journey, I, I, what you just said there around the guys at 37 Signals and Lots of other buffer is another one to do is, you know, just great stories of companies that are able to maybe raise some sensible money along the way from angels, but being much more deliberate and maintain ownership and control and growing at your own pace without the chain around your neck of we've got to hit these huge valuations, which I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of casualties of the last two or three years and the sort of crazy numbers that people have been raising at. So there is absolutely businesses where there is that huge potential and the scalability is obvious to go global and build a unicorn and they require VC funding. But I do, like you said, I think there's a much broader range of ways in which you can grow a successful SaaS company now. Now, I appreciate the economic climate is is very different to what it was back in, in 2018. But for th- those founders who do have one eye on acquisition further down the line and sort of in the mid, mid to long term, what advice would you give them in terms of how they need to sort of prepare themselves for that process? What advice would you give having been in the trenches and gone through it? So I remember when talking to new starters, when we were explaining share options and they'd ask about an exit and goals there. And I'd say, look, we think this is the type of business that will get acquired because we could just see lots of places that what we did would fit in. But I'd always emphasize getting acquired will be a byproduct of building a great business. So waking up every day thinking about when we might exit this thing was not how we operated. It was waking up every day and thinking about, can we build a great business to solve problems? And if we do that well, we'll get acquired. And for us, fortunately, it came along a lot sooner than we expected, but that is how it played out. So that should be the focus in my mind. Build a great business and then keep optionality on the table is important. So you could you know, be an equipped to understand how you might go and raise money or what could look like an exit for you, whether it's a strategic kind of trade sale or whether it's a P route or Places like MicroAcquire these days where it's a lot easier. There's marketplaces to go and sell B2B SaaS ideas. There's a lot more options now to do that. In terms of like getting ready for it, I mean, as and when we you do have the offer, I think we were in good shape because, well, there were a few things that could put us in good shape. One, we were always ran a tight ship. One of our investors early on really drilled into me the importance of like, keep run a tight ship, like have, be on top of your numbers, know your business inside out, don't have any skeletons in the closet, just do do things right, get, get some of these foundations in place, spend money on a lawyer to get your contracts done correctly and 
when we came to raise money, we were, we were in good shape. And then even more so when it came to the due diligence process, which is obviously stressful and there's a lot that could go wrong in those stages. But I knew we didn't have any skeletons in our closet. And I knew we, we from day one, you could ask me anything about the business. And if I didn't know the answer, I could quickly find the document. And I could almost sense with the with Integrate and their leadership team, almost like the relief of like, okay, these guys know their stuff. Like they've got, there's not going to be any skeletons in the closet here that are going to come out. So yeah, I would say from an early early stage, if you can kind of have that rigor and discipline to run run a tight ship, have your reporting in place, know your numbers, get your contracts right, that will put you in good stead if and when the acquisition may come along. Excellent. What a great way to to end the episode. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. There's so much more I would have wanted to talk to you about, and hopefully we might get a chance to do it again, but there's a lot of value in what you've shared, and I really appreciate the time that you've taken. Before we go, how can people find out more about you and the work that you do and some of the advisory work that you do with those early-stage startups? LinkedIn's probably the best place to look me up and feel free to drop me a message on there. I'll say I'm, I haven't like got a, my own website or anything like that because this is sort of stumbled into it, and, I, and at some point, Andy and I are working on our, our next idea. So we're, I say we're kind of getting ready to strap back in. But in the meantime, yeah, it, it, LinkedIn's probably a great place to find me and always happy to chat about SaaS and what's going on. And I enjoy these are topics I enjoy and hopefully have some interesting views on. So yeah, feel free to um, look me up on LinkedIn and drop me a message. Fantastic. Really appreciate your time, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's been good.